This is a podcast by The Straits Times and Money FM 89.3. Hello and welcome to this special edition of the Asian Insider podcast channel. I'm Bhagya, ST's foreign editor, and our guest in the studio is ST's Indochina bureau chief, Tan Huiyi. Huiyi was posted in Bangkok as ST's Thailand correspondent 10 years ago, and around 5 years ago she became the paper's Indochina bureau chief, and she's been reporting on happenings in Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia, Myanmar, apart from Thailand. Welcome to the show, Hui. Thank you very much for inviting me to the show, Bagya. Well, we're meeting at a time when there's growing discussion about China's presence in the Asia Pacific. Um, China, of course, is the top trade and investment partner for ASEAN for more than a decade now. Uh, Hui, you've had a close look at one aspect of China's presence in our region uh, during a recent reporting trip that you made to Cambodia. Uh, I think you've written about visiting Sihanoukville. which is a quiet coastal town that has been completely transformed by chinese investment could you describe for us the transformation that you saw well i visited sianok mill in may after its boom and its bust so i got to see a city that was recovering from the excesses of rapid development uh, over the past 5 or 6 years so this is an interesting point in the city's history if i may give some context uh, sianokville used to be this quiet beachside holiday town for locals and foreign backpackers it was not yet a city before this huge influx of chinese investment turned up around 2016 onwards so from 2016 to early 2018 chinese invested 1 billion us dollars uh in that city that's quite a lot of it was in casinos and hotels but it was not something that local officials were ready for the local governance systems and the local infrastructure just could not handle that amount of construction as well as the numbers of chinese that turned up um there was also an alarming increase in crime and all that came to a halt in 2019 when cambodia banned online gambling you know tens of thousands of chinese left the city and even more left after the pandemic hit these people left behind many half constructed buildings that still stand today um i was talking to this diplomat recently who visited sianokville during the pandemic you know he said the streets were so quiet that it felt like some scene after an apocalypse thankfully things are becoming more alive again uh businesses starting up the Cambodian government just spent over 300 million US dollars to improve its roads and sidewalks and wastewater treatment system. Cambodia has also designated the wider Priyasianuk province as a multi-purpose special economic zone that is to attract a wider range of investors as well as to make a more sustainable development in the city. The locals that I spoke to there are cautiously hopeful that this will mean better lives in the longer run. But locals, how do they look at the changes that they saw in their city? I mean, of course, this has been a very dramatic time for us all. Pandemic providing a very extraordinary kind of intervention in the scene. 
but how do they feel about since the time the $1 billion in investment came in to the point where the boom happened and then the bust that you just described? So what do they feel? What are you hearing from the ground? Well, it's been quite a ride, right? Uh, the Chinese investment turned Tianokville from this quiet town to a high-rise city with luxury hotels and apartments. It did create jobs. Uh, migrant workers from other provinces came to this place to work in the casinos. Some came to drive tuk-tuks and others work as food delivery personnel. But as I mentioned earlier, the local infrastructure and the governance systems were not prepared for this huge influx. The roads were small, for example, and they kept getting damaged by these large construction trucks. The local law enforcement officers struggled to cope with the surge in crime um, and, you know, uh, rubbish accumulated on the streets. And to a certain extent, Chinese investment tended to be insular. So you would see these Chinese-run grocery shops and restaurants serving Chinese clientele almost exclusively with the Chinese lettering on their menus and on the shop fronts. This alienated the locals. But back then, Chinese workers were brought in to work on these massive construction projects. We could argue that the speed and the scale of these projects required a level of skill and a number of workers that Cambodia just could not provide. But overall, I think that Cambodian businesses felt sidelined. Uh, when I was there in Sianokville, I tried to ask some of these Chinese uh, shop owners about how they felt, you know, about the situation. And one of them was this woman from Fujian province who owned a small restaurant serving delicacies from her hometown. She hired two Cambodian workers in her restaurant, which was about one year old, and her menu was exclusively in Chinese. I asked her what she thought about the idea of putting Khmer words on it to reach out to local customers. Khmer being the local language. Yes, the local language. Mm -hmm. And then she said something like, oh, this is what she had been meaning to do, but she just didn't quite have enough time. But in the meantime, she had put pictures of her food on the menu so that the people who could not read Chinese could at least know what they were ordering. So in hindsight, I think some of these Chinese entrepreneurs are realizing that the insular style of business is not quite ideal and not quite sustainable. Right. So it's the insular kind of style which primarily created this resentment, apart, of course, from some civic kind of difficulties in dealing with the sudden influx and the pressures that it imposed on them. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, one would think that when more investment comes in, there is goodwill. So, so you describe the, I guess, the excitement in the initial phase at least. But, you know, here in Singapore's IC's Use of Ishaq Institute, there was a very interesting survey that they put out in February. And this is their annual State of Southeast Asia survey. And one of the things that they look at is which are the trusted, the most trusted countries in the region. How does Southeast Asia look at China, look at U.S., look at the major powers in the region? And, you know, in that poll, China came out as the least trusted country in the region. And it was actually Japan and the U.S. Uh, which topped that kind of poll. Now, does that entirely tally with what you know of the ground? Um, now, this IC survey is an elite survey. They interviewed policymakers, academicians. They had businessmen. So, you know, uh, those people. 
But I guess what I'm asking is how intense is this feeling, say, about uh, the Chinese for them or against them in each camp? What do you see? Yes, I think on a strategic level, regional governments are wary of becoming over-indebted to China and as a result, becoming over beholden to it. We have seen the Thais being very careful in their negotiations with China on the Thai-Chinese high-speed railway project. The Myanmar, under the civilian government uh, led by Aung San Suu Kyi, tried to scale down the Chopu Special Economic Zone project so that it would not have to take on a huge debt without some proof of commercial demand. There's also this perception, rightly or wrongly, that Chinese loans, while they are relatively easier to obtain, they are more expensive and they require relatively lower levels of due diligence on the feasibility of the actual projects tied to these loans. Now, this can be a dangerous element when you consider the level of governance and the corruption in this region. The harm that can be done is quite considerable when you have a badly conceived project with a huge budget. So that affects locals' trust in China. Um, Another factor has less to do with the Chinese government itself, but more about how Chinese or China-born tycoons have exploited the weak governance of some countries to run mini-empires allegedly involved in criminal enterprises. So in Laos, for example, we have the Golden Triangle Special Economic Zone run by this person called Zhao Wei. His network has been sanctioned by the US for being involved in drug and human trafficking and money laundering, among other things. So this feeds into the distrust about China and Chinese. This podcast is available on our audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O. Like us and rate us. And now, back to our podcast episode. Well, thank you for unbundling what is a very, very important thing that, as you rightly point out, the governments look at it and, um, you know, everybody in the public in the country feels it and has an opinion on it one way or another. So very interesting to know all that. You talked about Chinese loans, for instance, being relatively easy to obtain, but perhaps hard to pay off or having some complications which might be harder to deal with. Uh, Some of that we saw in Sri Lanka, which is in the grip of a very deepening uh, financial and economic crisis. But can we talk about Cambodia's neighbor, Laos? So it's been hitting headlines as well. There are fears that it could be the next Sri Lanka. It has those kind of features that you saw in Sri Lanka, a high debt burden, uh, which could perhaps create conditions for a debt default. Now, you've been writing and following on that situation What is your assessment? How dire is that situation in Laos now? Well, the kind of figures that were revealed in the Laos National Assembly recently were all quite alarming. It's spending 1.4 billion US dollars this year to service its debt. Inflation in June hit 23.6% year on year. Yeah, quite alarming figures. Much of this was due to the loans Laos took on over the past few years to develop projects that could yield exports. But the problems go beyond the loans. There is a great amount of leakage in the system. The Prime Minister recently revealed that nearly all of the 178 state enterprises have made losses over many years. 
nepotism is a big problem. And of course, the Ukraine war has worsened the kind of inflation that Laos is seeing. Bear in mind that this was the year that Laos was supposed to emerge from the pandemic. So this has been a huge shock to them. How do people in Laos feel towards Chinese loans and Chinese investments? Well, the locals have some misgivings. Uh, for example, because of their past experiences of enduring the pollution caused by some of these Chinese-owned farms. But the impression I get from speaking to officials as well as people in Laos is that Chinese loans and investment are still essential to get the country's development off the ground. So perhaps it seems that they might be willing to put up with a little bit of pain so long as the investments keep flowing. And the question, of course, is what happens when things don't go as planned. And you've described for us very well on how things might proceed for the rest of this year. And I hope at some point you can make a trip there and then give us a good report from the ground. Uh, we would deeply look forward to that. The other thing coming back to Cambodia is, um, you know, ASEAN chairmanship that it holds. And you, of course, will be there in Cambodia to report about the leaders summit that might take place in November. Of course, the last time that Cambodia was in the chair, the news was about how ASEAN had failed to produce a joint communique at the end of the summit, which is a rare event in ASEAN's way of doing things. Now, that failure to produce a joint statement was because there was an involvement of China, specifically with how ASEAN was looking to deal with China's claims in South China Sea. This year, as ASEAN leaders meet again in November, post-COVID recovery and perhaps the Myanmar crisis might be the big issues. The junta, as we know, does have a backer in China. To what extent is that Chinese involvement complicating ASEAN's ability to resolve this issue? Yeah, yes, like you said, um, China, despite what it says about trying to encourage a political resolution in Myanmar, it has been taking steps to normalize the junta's position as the ruling power. In April, we saw the Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi receiving the junta Foreign Minister Wunamong Lin, Meng Lin in China. Mr. Wang Yi made his first visit to Myanmar after the coup uh, for the recent Lanchang Mekong Corporation meeting. This was also attended by foreign ministers of four other ASEAN members, so that's Vietnam, Thailand, Laos and Cambodia. ASEAN has so far insisted that Myanmar send a non-political representative to its high-level ASEAN meetings. This denies junta chief Ming Online the platform to claim that he's the legitimate leader of Myanmar. So some would interpret China's actions as trying to split ASEAN. So I would argue that China's actions have merely amplified the existing divisions within ASEAN. China has been working with the junta to restart work along the China-Myanmar economic corridor. So in effect, China is treating the junta as the de facto authority in Myanmar. Cambodia has leaned towards this position. So as ASEAN chair, it has tried to reflect the opinions of ASEAN members that are more strongly opposed to the coup. We saw that in the statement by Mr. Braxakon, the ASEAN special envoy, when he was appealing against the transfer of uh, Aung San Suu Kyi to a prison compound. Having said that, things are not set in stone. As I've written about before, 
we have to bear in mind that the junta is struggling in its military campaign to wipe out the opposition. And Chinese investments will face a backlash if China aligns too closely with the junta. So the situation remains quite fluid. Uh, the other topic I wanted to talk to you about was the BRI projects in the region. Uh, now, you've written about the high-speed train project that links Laos to China. Could you tell us what are the other big BRI projects that are underway and which have the potential perhaps to transform the region altogether? Pandemic was a disruption, but are things slowly getting back to track? Well, I'm not sure about transforming the entire region as a whole, but some of the significant projects that we see coming up in Cambodia include this new 190-kilometre expressway linking Phnom Penh to Sihanoukville. That's supposed to be launched in September. This uh, $2 billion US dollar project is financed by the China Road and Bridge Corporation, uh, which will collect tolls for 50 years. And to me, I think that's a big game changer because I just came back from Sihanoukville and took like a five-odd-hour car ride from Phnom Penh to Sihanoukville which can be quite painful when there's a traffic jam and adds another hour to it. Um, another interesting project is this 880 million US dollar CM Reap Angkor International Airport that's backed by an, an affiliate company of Yunnan Investment Holdings that's due to come on stream next year. CM Reap is slowly coming to life, you know, with the return of international tourism, but it's a big question mark whether, you know, regional tourism will return to the same levels with China's zero-COVID strategy that's keeping people at home. And then uh, a bit closer to Singapore, we've got the Thai Chinese High-Speed Railway. The government recently announced that they plan to complete that by 2028. Uh, This project has been repeatedly delayed, but still it's an interesting space to watch because this would be one of the major pieces of the plan to link Kunming to Singapore by railway. Do you know, all that sounds rather good to me. Uh, I do, of course, wonder whether the environmental impact of such big projects have been adequately dealt with, probably in their financing, planning or other stages. But like you say, we've got to watch the space and we will do that indeed. So thank you, Hui. This was very interesting and we hope you can come back and speak to us about more insights like these. And that's it for this special edition from SD Asian Insider podcast channel. Thank you for listening. Thank you very much. The Asian Insider podcast channel is also available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and our audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O. Like us and rate us.